So let me ask you a question. How are things going? Well, let me, uh, let me ask it this way. How are things going in the, in the world today? How are things going in the nation today, you know? Um, I ask that because over the last several months, I've had this growing awareness that things in our culture are changing and changing kind of at warp speed, don't you think? Um, there, there are things that go on today that even a decade ago, would have, we would have thought, man, that's generations away. That's nowhere near going to happen in my lifetime. And I'm not talking about things like terrorism or even the loss of morality or even political, um, well, let's just call it chaos, okay? It goes deeper to the heart of this nation, the heart of a people, the soul, the spiritual condition that we find ourselves in. Because we see there's this growing disdain for what we call absolute truth, those things which are bedrock true. They're always true. They've always been true. They're always going to be true. There is a disdain for that. Especially when it comes to the expression of scriptural truth. And as a nation, uh, I believe we've now openly defied the commandments that we read in scripture. And because of what we see going on and what's happening around us, God's just been impressing upon my spirit to open up the word of God this summer in a special summer series on how to prepare for what's coming. Are we going to be living in fear or living by faith? And I've been led to the book of 1 Peter. It's going to be our text this summer, and um, we'll come back to Romans in the fall to finish it out. This book of 1 Peter, it speaks to Christians who are living in a cultural environment that is openly hostile or openly against the Christian church. And it could be that it just rejects them or rejects their ministry or their message or it marginalizes them or in some ways even inflicts persecution upon them. But one way or another, they're just not welcome in the culture in which they reside. The, the culture would rather they not be there. And believe it or not, the, 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 the message of First Peter is one of great hope. It's one of great encouragement, even inspiration of how the church flourishes when it's uh, in the midst of persecution or even in the midst of rejection. And as I've thought about the outlook of so many Christians today, I've come up with these three distinct groups of people, of Christian people and how they look at the world in which we're living today and the culture in which we're living. And the first group is characterized just by outright fear. They read the, the, the paper in the morning, or they watch the news, or they just look at what's going on, and they just go, I am fearful for the future. I'm fearful for the world my kids are going to grow up in. I'm fearful for the world my grandkids are going to grow up in. What's happening? And there's this um, gripping fear. Group two is more characterized by, I guess I would call it resignation. And this is probably a larger group even than the group of fear. It's just like... This country's just going down. It's just a sad state of affairs. It's just hopeless. And when they pray, they pray what? They pray, Jesus, would you please what? Come quickly. Get me out of here. They're just resigned to this doomsday kind of attitude. There's a third group of people. 
And I don't know, we might call it the smaller group, I don't know, you may disagree with that, but this group of people are characterized by the presence of an inexpressible, inextinguishable joy. It's almost as if what's going around, what's going on in the world, it just doesn't get in here. You can't discourage them or defeat them or depress them because they have this ultimate hope in the living Christ, and it just fills them with this joy. It's the best word to describe. They're excited about the future. I don't have to convince you that there's things going wrong in the culture, but let me give you a few statistics. Um, And this has to do with youth. In the next 24 hours, there's 1,000 unwed teenage girls that are going to get pregnant. 500 teenagers will begin using drugs. And 16s are going to take their life in this nation today. That's from Josh McDowell's book, Right from Wrong. And that's every day in our culture. That cycle's just repeated every day. And, and, And many Christians who live with this sense of fear for the future, I hope I can say this. They've wrapped Christianity up in the American flag. You understand what I'm saying? It's kind of all one and the same. If America's losing, then Christianity's losing. If America goes down, the gospel is extinguished. And I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm going to say, but Jesus doesn't need the United States of America to see the power of the gospel change people's lives. <laughs> the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not dependent on America for its survival. And I think so many Christians today believe so. And that's it's a different argument that we ought to uphold spiritual values. And that's a whole different argument. But many are fighting today more to preserve a traditional America than they do praying for lost souls to come to faith in Christ so others will see the light of Christ in them. And when those people come to faith in Christ, guess what happens? The culture around us begins to change, the very thing that they want to see happen. And this series of sermons assumes one thing you may agree with or not agree with. You ready? This assumption that I'm making is that we are living in a culture hostile to our faith. That we've kind of turned a corner. And so how do we live Christ in a culture that sees us sometimes as that which needs to be marginalized, extinguished, eradicated from the culture? And we look at 1 Peter, the first few verses. Listen to what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens. You ever been called an alien before? To those who reside as aliens. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, the whole Trinity there, and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, is that positive or is that negative? That is a positive exhortation to the church. That even when you live in a culture that may be against you, that there is a positive faith that Jesus Christ wants his people to exhibit. And for people my age or older, we feel as if 
Sometimes we're living in a foreign country compared to the land in which we grew up, right? And Peter is saying to the church, it doesn't matter what culture you're living in. It doesn't matter if you even live in a culture that was, say you were here at the Revolutionary Time, the Revolutionary War Time, and you were there with the founders. You are still an alien in the cultures of this world. You are still not to find your investment here. You're still to find your investment in the things of God and His kingdom. And that word alien means foreigner, stranger. Living in a place that is not your, what? Home. And yet many times we we find ourselves wanting to fit in. We want people to like us. We, We don't want to be so radical. We don't want to be so... Biblical. And the point I would make is that fitting in is selling out. Fitting in many times is selling out. And uh, I, I just would exhort us to accept our position as one of alien. Now, don't go around calling each other that, okay? But you know what I mean. Alien. Have you ever felt out of place somewhere? You're just out of place. You're a fish out of water. You just don't belong. I mean, it's quite common in my life, so I've kind of gotten used to it, you know, over the years. But I remember a time when I was in high school, I went to this, uh, this uh, retreat conference on leadership in Estes Park, Colorado. I grew up in Denver, and it was, uh, it was an honor to be chosen to go. And so I went, uh, had high expectations. And the theme of the conference for these Denver area high school leaders was, Who am I? That was the title of the conference. It was billed as helping student leaders reach high levels of success by understanding the internal potential that we possess as human beings. And it became obvious to me early on that I was out of place. (laughs) What I believe was out of place. The presenters, the small group leaders, most of the students were anything but Christian anti-Christian, and this was 1975. Anytime I would open up in a conversation in a small group and presented a view of humanity that reflected my Christian upbringing, that without intervention of a Savior, we're destined to live isolated, lonely lives. That we're born with a need for spiritual awareness of God Almighty through Jesus Christ. How do you think that message played in that circle? I remember being belittled, marginalized. I even had one of the small group leaders take me aside to try to help my confusion. (laughs) The conference closed with one of those motivational speakers coming in who spoke about this inner ability that we all possess to change the world and I remember looking around and seeing all these student leaders just crying and weeping. And I thought, I just feel nothing. (laughs) I just got nothing. This is just so not right. And I remember thinking, this is a place, this is a mindset, this is a worldview that I don't fit in with. And I, quite frankly, I, I don't want to fit in with. And, and in some ways there was this, High school arrogance, will you call it? That I looked at those people as my enemies. Not only did we disagree, but it was, I took it a step further and says, I disagree with you, so 
you're wrong, I'm right, and I'm against you. And I think that uh, sometimes, if we're not careful, Christians today, when they feel confronted by the deception that's going on in the culture, take the position that I'm against you when Jesus isn't against them. Jesus loves them. I think First Peter gives us great, great instruction. Look at what it says here in First Peter going on in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proving of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Amen. (laughs) That's just inspiring to me especially when I understand the context of who he's writing to. A persecuted, a suffering church. So I have to tell you, do you know that we have great days ahead? Same response in the first service, kind of lukewarm. Do you know that we have great days ahead? Amen. Jesus has risen from the dead, and we have a living, breathing hope. We have an inheritance that is imperishable. It cannot die. It's undefiled. It's the same as it's always been. And it will not fade away. And if that weren't enough, we are protected by the very power of God awaiting our final salvation in heaven. We have great days ahead of us. And that's not even my text today. My text is the next verse, okay? Oh, just hang on. Just hang on. In verses 6 through 9, we're going to talk about something that we all love, and that's about trials. Trials. You know, the word trials in this passage could be translated sometimes as temptation. It's it's kind of a weird connection, isn't it? A trial. Let me ask you, when you go through a trial, when you have a problem, are you tempted to believe things that may not be true? When you're going through a difficult trial or it's struggle, are you tempted to say, why, God? What, what are you doing this to me for? So we learn things about trials in this passage. The first thing is this. Trials are temporary, aren't they? They're just temporary. The Scripture says, for a little while you may be distressed by various trials. And so the first question that I have is, how long is a little while, Right? How long is a little while? And the more I thought about that, perhaps a more important question is, uh, what's the attitude behind the statement that you're going to have trials for a little while? If the culture turns on the church like cultures have done throughout history, will we have this attitude that our trials, our problems are temporary? Now, let let me think of it this way. When was your last trial, your problem, your temptation to believe something that wasn't true because things were difficult? 
Last week, exactly. Well, let me put it in perspective. How many of us in our day and age, living in modern America, when we think of ourselves in comparison to the rest of the world throughout history, are our trials the same as other people's trials? In our modern, affluent, comfortable... And I don't want us to contextualize trials to our Americanized form of trials, but these are trials, and we don't know what the future holds, do we, folks? We don't know how deep trials we may be facing. But when you're you're in that trial, what are you thinking about? Are you telling yourself, oh, this is only temporary? Oh, this is going to pass? Or are you thinking, how do I get out of this? How do I relieve this? How do I end this, resolve this? And so I thought about giving you a hypothetical situation, something uh, that I want you to ask yourself, how would you respond? Now, this is purely hypothetical, never will happen in the United States of America, okay? You got that? We're insulated from this kind of stuff, right? Let's say you're living in a country far, far away, and it's illegal to formally meet as a Christian. It's against the law, but Scripture tells you that you're not to forsake meeting together, and so you meet in kind of an underground secret kind of way. But one day, the government finds out about what's going on, and they interrupt your meeting. They take your pastor and torture him in your presence. And you don't like that, right? Takes you a while, and it's all right. And they take the whole congregation and they split you up and they put you in these prison cells and separate you because they know you like talking to each other and having all that fellowship, and so they're going to separate you. So there you are, alone, locked up, all because you simply were driven, compelled to worship Jesus. And be honest, how would you feel? Would your attitude be like, God, why, what, it ain't supposed to be this way. Why'd you let this happen? Or would you be praising Him for the eternal hope that is inextinguishable, His joy that is constant and ever-present, and that you have been counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. And you'll continue to love those that you come in contact with. Prison guards, whoever. You're just going to be the person of Christ to them. And above all, this is temporary. I know this is temporary. They might say, it's not temporary. This is a life sentence. Does that mean it's not temporary? Because one day I'm going home. One day I'm going home. Another thing we learned from this passage about Trials is that it exposes our faith, reveals it. Verse 7 says that our faith is proven through trials. And the word means to be genuine, to be real. Oh, this really is true about you. I mean, you can say all day that you have faith in God, and you can take that hypothetical situation I gave you, and you can put yourself there, yeah, I would stand with Jesus, right? (laughs) I mean, you can say it all day. But it's the trials of life that come your way that reveal who you really have put your trust in. It's interesting how it compares it to gold. That, you know, it's as if Peter is thinking of the most priceless, the, most, the best you can have in this world. It's saying you can take the best the world can give you, the best job, the best house, the best family, the best kids. You can take all of that. And one day it's going to be over. It's going to be gone. It's perishable. People die. Finances get passed on or dry up. He says, but faith is different. Faith 
is different. It's imperishable. It can't be physically taken away from us. In fact, our faith in Jesus is only going to grow. We can't see him now, but one day we're going to see him face to face and all faith will become sight. And so I, I ask you, who do you trust in today? Where is your faith? If, if real difficult things came your way, what would you run to? What would you depend on? What do you fear losing the most? Another way of asking the same question is, what's your idol? And for some, it is their gold. I mean, I've spent a whole lifetime building security, amassing gold. What if it's gone? Worse yet, what if it's stolen from you? Oh, worse yet, what if it's stolen from you by your government? Where do you place trust? Another point we learn from this passage is that trials, if we'll embody this temporary attitude towards them, if we'll let them expose a real genuine faith we have in God, that these trials push us, draw us into who Christ is in our life. They draw us to Jesus. It says in verse 7 that these temporary trials test us and they will result, when that testing reveals our faith in Jesus, it results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. We can't physically see Him and yet there's a, everybody knows we deeply love Him. Everybody knows we deeply believe in Him. And I want to tell you today, this doesn't come as any revelation to us, but Satan wants to disrupt your life. You know that, right? Satan wants to cause havoc in your life, right? You know one of the ways Satan causes a lot of havoc in people's lives today? He gets them to believe that building stuff in this world is where it's really at. That's what, if your life's going to matter, it's because you're going to build these Wonderful lives here on this planet. He's going to tell you to pursue money, have the best kids, have the best home, uh, have the best health. Everyone is going to be nice to you. That's the expectation. You're entitled to it after all. Oh, you're a Christian. Boy, you're really entitled to it. You're entitled to a wonderful career with a nice retirement and all that goes with it. And he gets you thinking that that's the way it is. Why is that one of his ploys? <laughs> because he knows if there's ever a chink in that armor. If there's ever one bit of bad news that comes flying in, one layoff, one financial mistake, all of a sudden everything begins to crumble. Discouragement sets in. When it's all about Jesus, you, 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 your thinking's different. I mean, you just... It's not about here. Yeah, I'm going to do all that I can to... Use the things that he's entrusted to me to help other people to be able to be the shining light in dark places. I'm going to do all that I can, but at the end of the day, it's all about him. At the end of the day, it's all about my home that I'm going to. <laughs> that's, that's really what it's all about. So, world, take your best hit, right? You just live him publicly, privately. And you just let the chips fall where they will. Sometimes people will be positively moved towards faith as they see Jesus in us, and sometimes living Jesus can cost you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that living Jesus can cost you in the day in which we live? Do you remember a few years ago? In fact, I think it was in 2012 now. Do you remember where the CEO of Chick-fil-A made a biblical statement about marriage? He actually said it to the Baptist press. Do you realize that? And he says, I just... I just firmly believe that marriage is between a man and a woman and it's for life. What happened? 
in the aftermath of that statement. <laughs> one, one politician said, Chick-fil-A makes hate chicken. Can't they even come up with something better than that? This is hate chicken. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio urged a boycott of all Chick-fil-A restaurants, accusing them of spreading a message of hate, a biblical statement. No opinion was given except just as this is what the Bible says, what I believe. And do you remember what happened? Chick-fil-A didn't fight back. They just kept doing business, and God blessed them. And later that same week, I think somebody, I think it was Mike Huckabee, had the idea to have a Chick-fil-A day where people could show support for Chick-fil-A. Do you remember that day? I remember that day. I remember waiting an hour and a half for a chicken sandwich. That's what I remember. My wife ate all three meals at Chick-fil-A that day. All three meals. I've never had chicken for breakfast. Never. Never going to. They set a one-day record for sales on that day. And I say, what Satan means for harm, God uses for good. And that's not the end of the story. This past week, there was a senseless shooting in Orlando. It kills 49 people. Doesn't your heart just break when you see things like that? And it injured far more than that. And uh, last Sunday, there was this long line of people waiting to give blood for the victims and team members at two nearby, and waiting to give blood for the victims. And team members at two nearby Chick-fil-A stores thought, those people must be getting hungry. They sure are standing out there a long time. I think they could use some... Chicken sandwiches, chicken nuggets, fries, and sweet tea. But it's Sunday. Chick-fil-A never opens on Sunday. So why am I talking about it today, right? Of all days, right? Those team members called their bosses, and they went down there, and they opened up the store, and they got the lights on, and they started frying chicken. And one team, as they went out, and they delivered it to the people in line, and one team member wrote on their Facebook page, We love our city. We love the people in our city. Why is Chick-fil-A so generous? It's because their number one priority, they state, is not to make a profit. Tell me how many businesses go with that. Our number one priority is not to make a profit. Do they make a profit? Yeah. They say our number one priority is not to make the best chicken sandwich. Do they make the best chicken sandwich? He says they're none... One, number one corporate priority is to, and I'm going to quote, glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. You think the church could learn anything from a chicken restaurant? We all choose how we're going to respond to trials. Are they going to be temporary? Will we continue to be biblical in our understanding of the world and not shrink back from truth, even if it costs us? Are we going to let trials draw us into Jesus? There's one last thing from this passage. Verse 6 begins with this phrase, In this you greatly rejoice. This is, a, this is about trials. In this you greatly rejoice. Verse 8, as the summation of this says, because of, his, because of this love we have for Jesus, he says, we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's the attitude of faith. 
The world can't steal my joy. My joy is not dependent on the stuff of the world. They can take away our wealth, our livelihood. They can take away political liberty. They can take away our right to own property. But they can't take away an inexpressible joy for the life of Christ Jesus living in us. And that's the church the world needs to see in our day. We care deeply about our nation because it's about people. People who matter to God. And the church is to share this infectious love, this care, this concern for our communities. No matter how they treat us. That's church. That's Christ. That's what we do. There's a story of a man and a woman driving home from their honeymoon and they have a terrible car accident. And the husband looks across the sea and he sees his wife unconscious, bleeding. And they're out in this rural place and he doesn't know what to do. The car won't go anywhere. And he picks his wife up and he's, he's frantic and he just starts carrying her. He knows staying there is not going to do any good. So he starts carrying her. And luck would have it, he, he comes upon this house and on the sign out front it says, Dr. Thomas Brown, M.D. He says, what luck? Out here in the middle of nowhere. He rushes to the door and on the front door there's this Similar sign, Dr. Thomas Brown, M.D. And he knocks frantically on the door and an elderly gentleman comes to the door and he looks at the situation. He sees the man holding his wife just unconscious and bleeding. And there's a resignation in his voice and he says, I'm so sorry, I, I can't do anything for you. And the husband says, do something for her. You're a doctor, right? Look at the signs. He says, well, I used to be. I don't practice anymore. I'm sorry, I can't help you. And he shut the door. And the man's just distraught. What do I, what do I do? He just, he just pounded on that door again for all he was worth. And the man comes back to the door. And uh, the new husband says these words. He says this. He says, listen, if you no longer practice... What? Take down the signs. And there's churches with signs, right? And there's churches with steeples. I mean, we don't have one. but Big buildings. But is it a reflection of a time that used to be? Or are we embodying the very life of Jesus? where we understand our trials are temporary and our faith is real and genuine? And is our culture seeing the restorative, life-giving gospel? Are we going to live Him in the darkness we see growing? You know, as I pondered these thoughts, I mean, we say this a lot here, but it's so true. If this is going to happen in our day, on our watch, if, the, if there's going to be this expression of Christ, it's going to take Jesus to do it, right? It's going to take Jesus to do it in us. We're always drawn back to who He is. Jesus working through the vibrant love relationships He has with you and you and you and me. And all of a sudden, they see us loving one another. They see us caring about our communities. They see us speaking the truth regardless of the opposition. Let's pray that would be so with us. Father, I thank you for 
the glory of your presence. I thank you for the fact that you've given us a faith that is untarnished by the darkness that the world throws at it. That there is this place with you that is secure. That is a fortress that has a positive look towards the future. Our faith, Father, is in you today. And as we endure trials in our life, there, there, there is this rock-solid belief. There's this rock-solid Spirit of Christ that wells up within us, that assures us that this world is not our home. That this world is hostile towards you. And Father, I pray very specifically for anyone that might be here today that is gripped by fear or is living in a place of uncertainty or is living in a wondering if there is this connection with you that provides that kind of security, that kind of hope, that kind of faith. Oh, I pray very simply they would come to you and say, Lord, I'm yours today. Lord, I don't know what the future holds, but I want you to hold me. I want you to hold my future. I'm coming to you today. I'm giving my life to you. I'm saying, Lord, I'm with you. Release me from the stuff this world has thrown in my path. Help me to not make that my, my life's goal, my life's pursuit. I want to be drawn into the beauty of who you are and what you provide. I want heaven to be my home. I pray, Father, that those, anyone here who's not taken that step would do that right in these moments, Father. And as a church, we sing we sing to you our prayer as we close. Let's stand together.